Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for this story of hope and renewal and delight and joy. Father, we come this morning on this Memorial Weekend and uh, also thankful for the place that we, we call home. And uh, we are thankful for all the people that have sacrificed for our generation to be here and to be in freedom. We thank you for the people that we know, our families, our relatives, our friends, who have served to protect us, those who have gone on before us. But Father, we are also heavy-hearted this morning <clears throat> because we have had another um, massacre of children. Father, we want to pray for those families in Uvalde, a place that I know very well, and uh, ask that you somehow uh, comfort the families there in spite of losses of also the story of a resurrected life, of life that truly comes from you and you alone. Father, we are asking for peace to reign in our time. Um, it seems like the, it's just a very menacing place right now. But uh, Father, we want to, to continue to trust you and not lose hope because you are our hope. Help us not to misplace that, that we walk continually with you, trusting you that uh, in our, and, and we're putting our safety and our family's safety in your hands, and we know that ultimately we are safe in your arms and that you want the best for your children. And so, Father, I just pray that we learn to cooperate with that. And... Um, that we experience that love that flows through the creation by the third person of the Trinity and made possible by the second and ordained by the first. Father, we ask that we help us to live our lives within the flow of love of the, of the triune God. So, Father, we are giving this time to you. We ask that you use this wonderful story and, uh, and teach us from it a better how to do that. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I still got whatever this is is hanging on, and so if I start coughing, I'll try to cover the mic or something. I will try not to cough on you. I don't know, it just won't, it won't leave. And, and I had a wedding yesterday in the, in the rain. That was great. That was really helpful. <laughs> so, and, and I can't laugh without starting to cough. So uh, everything's going to be solemn and serious this morning. So. <clears throat> Uh, several years ago, when Sue and I first got married, um, we had some, you know, some, some things that happened to all new married couples and things like that. And I've mentioned before the story when she tried, when she tried to make chili, which uh, for a Texan is just, you know, it's, there's only one way. There's only one way to make chili. And uh, there's only, you know, it's only one real recipe. Uh, LBJ, by the way, wanted to pass a law in Congress that this would be the official chili recipe for the United <laughs> States. It didn't pass. But, uh, <clears throat> but she introduced me to bratwurst, and I always say, you know, I think I might could be a vegetarian if it wasn't for bratwurst. But uh, I, it, she, mentioned, she introduced me that to that, and uh, I decided I would introduce her to some southern cuisine. 
And uh, I was going to make chicken fried steak. And that is a staple for Southerners. I mean, it, and everybody's, uh, the best recipe is whatever, however their mom made it, right? And uh, my mom made the best chicken, chicken fried steak. And uh, so I got a recipe from her. And it's not like, I, I worked since I was 15 in a restaurant. It's not like I don't know my way around the kitchen normally. But I was going to make this chicken fried steak for her and introduce her to real Southern cuisine. And uh, so we ate it, and it didn't, the batter didn't stick as well as I thought. It was not as good as mom. I didn't know what I did wrong, but we sat down and we ate it. And something really tastes odd about this. I mean, not good at all. And it really wasn't the steak necessarily. I don't know what it was. And we were, I was trying to go through what I did, and I was trying to show her. And I pulled the stuff that I made it with, and I had used uh, powdered sugar instead of flour. <laughs> so... Uh, we immediately knew that something was wrong. <clears throat> Just a, a simple check of what was in there would have saved, saved me a lot of heartache and a lot of embarrassment <laughs> and a good chicken fried steak. But uh, Sometimes I, I've kind of used that thinking, okay, that's kind of like trying to discern the will of God and what is the spirit, uh, how does the spirit lead us? And and sometimes it's just simply checking what's in the canister, you know, and, and checking in to see where God is leading and what's in the, what's in the canister, that you don't use flour, powdered sugar instead of flour. Uh, or you just check the expiration date on the milk before you pour it over your cereal. Or you, or you check the heat of your serrano peppers before you throw a handful into the blender for salsa. It's just simple things like that that you can do, you know, to kind of check. But sometimes it's just not as easy as we think it is. We, it, finding God's will is just doesn't, not, that, not as simple as we, we hope that it would be. Uh, it's not as obvious. The, the right choice is just not as evident. Uh, the right decision just isn't, you know, just doesn't jump out at you like it is. It's not, sometimes we think we have this advantage of the, of the filling of the Holy Spirit, but it's hard to, it's hard to discern that. And so this is probably one of the biggest questions that Christians have is how do we spiritually discern. And believe me, it, I wish I was an expert on this, and I wish I'd come and tell you, well, this is how I do it, and it works every time. But I can't. I don't. Uh, it's a struggle, I think, for every single believer. Uh, Jesus tells us in John 16, that whole chapter really is about how he's sending the Spirit. The, the advocate is not a great translation, but that's what we use a lot. The counselor is kind of not exactly what we wanted either. I always, like I said last week, it's kind of like we think the Holy Spirit's going to come with warm milk and, and Oreo cookies or something. It's not that at all. But this is what he says. He says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. And so we have this promise that this helper, this counselor, this advocate, this guide is going to come. But, but how? How does it work? How do we know? And so many, I don't know about you, but... I've experienced it. I know people who've experienced it where we feel like we're following God's will. This is what God wants us to do. And it ends in utter failure. I mean, it just, sometimes it's just disastrous. And then you start questioning, okay, was this not from God? It just you know, blew up in my face. Did I miss cues here? Did something wrong? Um, you know, we were trying to plant a church in, in, in Mexico and it was just struggling and struggling. And we kept, we had all these doubts, is it blowing up in our face? What, you know, how do we, how do we know this? And then when we feel like it's, well, was this really not from God? Then we get grumpy, or at least I do. I get really grumpy and just, you know, just disappointed. 
I get disappointed in God, and he didn't come through for me. And I just get this kind of, I don't know how to describe it except grumpiness. And that's the way, it, that's the way I feel. And it's kind, of, it's kind of the way you feel when you get burned out. And you do get burned out. And you just don't want to do it anymore. And I, I've heard a preacher say, well, I'd rather burn out than rust out. Well, there is another alternative to burning out or rusting out. Okay, and that is the solution, the cure for a burned out heart, ironically enough, is a burning heart, uh, one that is burning with joy and delight and, and presence of God and, and walking with him. And it, that's the cure to a burned out is a burning, burning heart. That is the cure for a burned out heart. Um, first and foremost, we are to discern God himself before we discern his will. That is a must. And if anything we learn here in the story of Emmaus is that we have to discern God first, the will, the choices, the decisions, those just those come later. That is it. So this is, I love this road to, to Emmaus story. It's a, it's a way of, of finding God, but we kind of want to, when we talk about discerning, we want to pigeonhole the discernment of the Holy Spirit into only how do I make a good choice? How do I decide? I've got all these options here. How do I know what to do? How do I know what to, where to move? I mean, we, you know, we talk about trying to find God's will about a major in college or what about my job. Should I take this job? Should I change this career? Who should I marry? Is this God's will that I marry this person? And those are complicated enough. And then when you throw in a church and you say, okay, the church is going to have to move and make decisions on this, on, on certain things, then it really gets complicated. And another question I always have is, well, which decisions are, are merit that sort of level, you know? Okay, who am I going to marry? Is this God's will for me to marry Sue? Is this God's will for me to do this job or whatever? Those, those seem like the big ones. But what if I'm in the grocery store? Do I need to ask God's will, which, you know, which is better, you know, Jeff peanut butter? Or, you know, what, what kind of peanut butter is best to buy? What decisions merit that kind of level of seeking God's will? So we got all these questions here. And that's what I mean when I say the problem is not that. The problem is that we get it backwards. Our first job is to discern God. The better question is what is God doing in the world? We want to pursue and discern Him. And then those decisions become easier and clearer. Not super easy, not simple, but it does play, pave the way for this. And this is, what, <clears throat> this is what happens in the road to Emmaus. It looks like sometimes Jesus is really obvious, and then other times he is not obvious at all. Now, I know the road to Emmaus, the story of the road to Emmaus, is not about finding God's will for your life. Okay, that's not what I, my point is. But what I do think it is, I think this story is so complex and so layered that there are so many things happening here that we can see this as this picture of how they discern what God is doing. And that is first and foremost. They are on the road. They are burned out. They are depressed. They are disillusioned. They are disappointed in God because this is what they thought this was what God was doing, that he was going to raise Israel to restore their place in society, that they were finally going to get the boot of Rome off their throat. They've been under the boot of Rome, of Persia, of Greece, of, of Babylonia, of, of Syria, 
all these years, and they're finally going to get this out, and this is what they think God is doing. And Jesus comes along with power and word and deed and all these kind of great things, and yet he gets turned over by the religious authorities and gets crucified. What a disappointment. He didn't do what we thought he was going to do. He was another failed Messiah. Successful Messiahs don't get killed. And that's what they're thinking. And and Jesus comes along and they say, you know, have you not heard? Are you the only one? Are you totally clueless? And apparently he is, sort of, from their point of view. No, what happened? Tell me, tell me what happened. And so they, they explain all these things to him and Jesus starts to explain, no, you missed it. Your own agenda has blinded you to what God is doing. You think God ought to be doing this, and God is doing that. And your own agenda, your own pride, your own hopes, they were getting in the way of what God's doing. And he takes the Bible and takes it from Moses on over through the end of the prophets to Malachi and says, this is what God is doing. It is another kind of kingdom. Just Just like he told Pilate. And what I love about Luke is that you could check out these themes that run through Luke and the second book of Acts. And you see these symbols of bread and, and road and walking and way. And these are all very, very, very significant things that happen. Luke is the one who gives us the most details about the Lord's Supper. And then here we have him actually giving the Lord's Supper to them. He becomes the host instead of the guest. And he gives them the bread of life. Luke doesn't take it like John chapter 6 and explain the bread of life. He just tells us these stories with these repetitive themes. And we have this theory, this this picture of what's going on here. And these guys respond. They hear and they listen. And they say their heart was burning inside of them. And they respond with with joy. And they they respond with celebration. And they respond with immediately going to tell other people about it. They discern Jesus. Jesus made himself clear. So sometimes it is obvious and sometimes it is not. So what do we need? Just from looking at this book, just looking at this story of Emmaus, what do we need for a discerning life? And we're going to come back to this and explain a little bit more, but I'm just going to mention some things that I see out of this story of what we need for a discerning life. First, a road to live. Luke loves the idea of the way, a road. He's always walking. And, and it's repeated in this story several times, and they walked, and they walked up, and then they walk, what are you saying when you walk along? And did you know this when you were walking? It's always this, this movement for Luke. And, and so we need a road to live. We're going from point A to point B. Our lives are not static. Uh, we need companions to share it with, to talk it over with. Uh, again, we're going to come back to this. A home where we can reflect and process. They immediately go into the home, and they bring Jesus into the home. And I'm not saying you need a, you know, a three-bedroom, two-bath house or anything like that. I'm talking about a place where you can be with Jesus. Uh, you need eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to feel. Again, we'll look at this a little bit later. A willingness to listen carefully and prayerfully, not letting your own agenda get in the way, and a willingness to respond. A willingness to respond with celebration and going and telling. So what do we get wrong about the, uh, do you want me to leave that up by any chance? Okay. Uh, what do we get wrong 
And what should we get right? What is spiritual discernment? Well, what it is not, it is not just this tool so that we can make the right choices. It's not just some, uh, some, some tool, some formula that if I plug this in, put people in the right place, add a little prayer, push, you know, will of God, and I've got it. It's not just to help us make choices. Uh, I saw somebody posted the other day a, a, a children's menu for uh, a hotel room. And it said, it said, you know, when the child says, I don't care, well, it's a hamburger and fries. You know, it says, uh, whatever, you know, well, it was a pancakes. And it was just like, whatever, you know, that's kind of what we want. We don't know what we want. We don't know what we want to do. And so we just want God to tell us what it is. It is not that. It is not a formula for that, for personal will. And it, like I said, it gets even more complicated for the church. And which decisions do we make? It's not forming a plan. It's not uh, forming a life plan. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of these things, okay? There's nothing wrong with looking for God to make decisions, to help you make decisions. There's nothing wrong with making a plan for life. But, you know, there's some people who want to plan their life out five years in advance. And they say, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to college here, then I'm going to go to law school here, and then by then I'm going to have a partner, be a partner in a law, law firm or whatever it is. And you plan your life out. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But then we get locked into it, or we start to feel, well, it kind of feels shallow. Where's the Spirit in all this? Okay, I have these plans in my life, but where's the Holy Spirit working in this? The other extreme is the call, where we get blasted by a call. We heard a dream. We had a dream, or we heard a, a preacher say, a passage of the Scripture jumped out at us, and we say, God has called us to do this. And, and as a church, you know, we might decide to say, we're going to do this regardless of our resources. We may not have the resources, but God has called us to do this. And that, that's, a, that's a good thing. God has called me to do something else. And, 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 I admit, and I was called up one time in a church meeting where the preacher said he had a word from God for me. You know, And it was great. It was great. But we've also known people who have said, God's called me to do this, and it's been disastrous. And it hasn't worked out like they thought. And it's also something that, that ends all conversation, right? It just it stops all conversation. We have, I have a good friend who left our mission agency uh, because God had called him to do something else. And, you know, we were talking about why he should stay with us and we needed him and all this kind of stuff. And he goes, well, God's told me to do this. End of discussion. You know, how can you argue with that? And those things are not bad. Again, those things are not bad at all. But sometimes you wonder, okay, maybe I did need a little bit of reason on this one. Maybe I did need a little bit of logic before I jumped the gun on this. Well, the third way is discernment. This is discerning. What we do is discern the spirit. And there's, I wanted to find a few terms here. <clears throat> just looking at discernment, it's perceiving and noticing, okay, first of all. It's just looking and noticing. It's the idea of holding hands and looking both ways before you cross the street. It's just noticing. It's sorting out. Sometimes we have to just kind of sort out what's going on around us and pick out different pieces. It's kind of like listening to an orchestra and trying to sort out the violins from the trombones and the clarinets. And it's listening to all the pieces that form this orchestra. It's kind of a sorting out thing. Sometimes it's a process of clarity. A process of clarity, like the biggest, the most obvious example for me is I, when I've been fishing with Ted and Bill, and they start before daylight, 
and we're out there in the boat in the dark trying to tie lures, and I can't see a thing, you know, you got a little headlamp on, and, it's, and I can't see much without glasses anyway, and so and I'm trying to do that, but then the sun comes up, and, you get, and it gets clear. It's this kind of process of clarity after a process. You have to wait for it, and then things kind of become clear. It's distinguishing between good and evil, being able to distinguish between right and wrong, of what's authentic and what's counterfeit. Um, when, we, when we came here 11 years ago, as a little gift, Sue bought me a, a compass to put on my desk so that I would always know it would always point to true north and that whatever decision we made, it would be pointing to true north. To know the difference between right and wrong and good and evil. Grasping the big picture. And of course, we have the cliche, the metaphor in our, in our culture of not seeing the forest for the trees. And that is so easy to do. We get things that are so relational to us and me and me personally. And we see all these things right for us, what is important to me. And we forget to see what God is doing in the big picture. And I think that is so important. I think it's, it's important to approach the scripture that way. To see what God is doing in the big picture. And not focus on you know, a certain loblolly pine tree in front of you. We have to see the big picture. So that is discernment. But what is spiritual discernment? As Christians, we are Trinitarians. And that, believe, and that means we believe in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is this person, this God Spirit who is alive and lives with us. It is, it is Jesus' Spirit that occupies every nook and cranny of our heart and I have no idea what a cranny is, but uh, it occupies every single space of our heart, every single space of our soul. This is, this is the Spirit. He is the initiator. God is the first one to love. God is the first one to guide us. God is the first one to be personal with us. It's, it's, we start to hear this, the voice of the Spirit, and I can tell you that the voice of the Spirit is never shaming it may be convicting, but it's never shaming. If you hear something that's shaming you and it's your own self-critic, that is the accuser. The Spirit will lead you in a right direction. It is, it is subjective. And I know all the rational people out there, all the, all the ones who like the logic and stuff, are going, hey, that's just, that's just too, too mystical for me. I can't handle that, you know. It's too subjective. I mean, I, I grew up in the Christian world where they told you, you know, the little, I don't know if you remember this, the little train that says fact is the engine and then faith is the next car and then feelings bring up the caboose. And so they were telling you that, that feelings and emotions are, don't pay any attention to them, you know, they'll mislead you, they don't, they don't really matter. Well, what that does is, is diminish the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't think now, my point of view right now is not ignore your emotions. I say pay a lot of attention to them. They are indicators. St. Ignatius de Loyola puts a lot of emphasis on that. And he says, look at your spirit. Of, is it a, you have a spirit of disconsolation or consolation? Do you have a spirit of disruption or a spirit of comfort? And both of these are indicators of what maybe God is doing. Pay close attention to those emotions. Don't ignore them. They are part of you, whether you want to admit it or not. I mean, I grew up where we didn't. We didn't, we didn't show our emotions. We didn't recognize them. They weren't allowed. It wasn't the Texas way, I guess. You know, you suck it up, and you keep going. 
But I'm at the point now where you now have to pay attention to them, that God uses them, and his voice is distinct. It is very different. Yes, it convicts, but it never shames. It assures us that we are his beloved. It never leaves us orphans. It points us to truth and hope. It guides us. It enlightens us. It comforts. It heals. It transforms us. It sustains us. And we have to learn to pay attention to that and pay attention to those emotions. They may be indicating something to you that's very, very important. So we live with a burning heart. Spiritual discernment is living with a burning heart, not a burned out one. It is a life discerning God before discerning his will. Before we discern his will. And yes, it is on the road. Luke loves that word, on the road and the way. In fact, in Acts, he calls the following Jesus the way. In other words, our lives are not static. We are in movement here. We are on the road. It is fluid. We need companions, friends, family, church members, people sitting next to you. We need each other to determine God's will. One of the first things that I, I happened, we were in our church plant. We had uh, four, four Mexican elders, two and one gringo, me. And we were sitting around, <clears throat> and uh, we had started with this small group, and this one young woman came and uh, talked to us about that she was getting ready to enter a relationship, uh, they call it a noviazgo, a relationship with a, a young man. And she came to the elder board to talk about it and get counsel on this. And my Spanish was still pretty elementary at the time, and after she left, I said, let me get this straight. She's coming to us to get our feedback on her noviazgo, on her relationship, her boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. And they go, yeah. That was perfectly normal. For me, for an American, no, that's her business, none of my business. But she was wise enough to seek the wisdom of five old guys and get feedback. And of course, we gave her our blessing. They did. I was kind of like, what's going on here? <laughs> Am I hearing this right? Am I understanding the Spanish right? But it was a beautiful thing. We do need companions to do that. We need, um, we need a home that we can invite Jesus into and sit with and process and discern and rest. We need ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to feel so that our hearts will be burning. We need to listen and we need to respond. We need to respond correctly. Jesus is risen. He is alive. His spirit lives in us. And we need to respond to that. And there are lots of things that hinder us, lots of obstacles. We all have blind spots and we all admit that readily. Yes, I have a blind spot. But then when somebody points it out to you, we get offended. I mean, when, you know, we all, if, you know, if you're married, you know that your spouse often turn, you know, points out those little blind spots to you, and you have to go, yeah, I think she's right. And it, not, it doesn't feel very good. But those blind spots keep us from, from, from discerning. Grief sometimes will keep us from discerning God, that we are so overwhelmed with sadness, we just can't see him. Sometimes grief does that. Disillusionment does that. They were disillusioned. They were in grieving. They could not see until Jesus made it clear to them. 
Luke makes a point to let us know that they were not able to see until Jesus broke bread and gave it to them and their eyes were opened. Sometimes we get so focused on the details around our life that we cannot see what God's doing. This myopic vision that we can't see the big picture. We just can't see past what's going on in my life right now. Sometimes we're just slow to believe like they were. He said, you're just you're kind of foolish. You know, you're slow to believe. Sometimes we get infatuated with the world's wisdom and we conflate Christianity with the world's wisdom and think they're the same thing. And sometimes we got to distinguish that. And then, of course, our own agendas. They always get in the way. We think we can know what's best instead of sitting back and being humble to hear what God is saying. Discerning, a discerning heart is cultivated. It is the ability to notice and perceive things. Um, I, I, I didn't see either ocean until I was 25 years old, Atlantic or Pacific. I did see the Gulf of Mexico once, or a couple of times. I had an aunt that lived down in Corpus Christi. And I still remember, I had these memories of these times when I was a kid, small child, going to the coast for the first time in the beach and just being amazed at the waves and the, and, the, and the tide and seeing your toes disappear in the sand when the waves come in. And that was just amazing. I remember my brother brought a coconut that was carved in the face of a pirate. You know, I just remember those things. And we were born like that. We were born to notice things like our toes disappearing in the sand. We were born to notice those, those waves that come in and pull you in and and take you back out, and, and you ride them. We were, we were born to notice those things, but then life gets complicated, and we lose it. We don't hear anymore. We don't see anymore. It's just become so hard to distinguish uh, the Spirit's voice from the world's voice. It's so hard to understand what God is doing and what He's not doing. And it's those minutes, that, those times where we have to lean into our relationship with God. Lean into it and wait. Wait at home. And I promise you, the more familiar you are with God, the clearer those decisions will become. You must do that first. Lean into that relationship with God in your prayer time. Enjoy it, wait, and the more you know God, the more you will know those choices and decisions. They will become clear. Not always. I'm 64 years old, and I still go, I don't know what God wants us to do. But when you know him, it becomes clearer, and he can cover a lot of mistakes if we know him. I'm going to close. I want to give you a, a fundamental exercise, just one little spiritual discipline that you can practice. And other than prayer and scripture, I think this may be the most fundamental spiritual discipline you can do. And that is, at the end of the night, at the end of the day, at night, you may be laying in bed while your spouse or your whatever, your wife or husband is brushing their teeth, whatever. Or just, for me, it's, it's spending some time in a chair downstairs after Sue has gone up to bed, because I know she's always going to be reading, so uh, she'll go up to read, and I'll spend a few minutes in this chair and review the day. I don't know if you've ever remembered the, the, the radio show Chapel of the Air, I think with David Maines. Uh, this is where I first heard this. He calls it the God Hunt. Uh, he actually stole it from um, Ignatius de Loyola, who called it the Prayer of Examine. 
who probably stole it from Paul. But anyway, just take the night, five minutes, and review the day. From the minute you got up, review the day and notice where God was. It could be something aesthetic, something a painting. It could be a view. It could be uh, a bird singing. It could be anything. Just something that pops in your mind. That was God. It could be an interaction with a person. It could be positive. It could be negative. But just review the day, and things will pop into your head as you see God. And after five days, it actually becomes kind of fun. It kind of becomes almost a game. Because God is always there tapping you on the shoulder. And you may roast it off during the day, I'm going to ignore that. But when you're laying there in bed or you're sitting in that chair in quiet, you start saying, no, that was God. And you start to notice. You do it five months. You do it five months and it will change your life you will start to understand and see God even more. And you do it for a lifetime, you do it for five years, and things will start to emerge. You will start to see God. You'll start to see highlights in your life of where God was at. You will see, see things that pop into your head. Some people want to write them down at night. I don't. If it's really crucial, I'll deal with it in the morning. I'm usually too tired at night to deal with it then but it will change your life, I promise you. Five minutes in the evening is all it takes to review the day, and these things will emerge. Jesus said that the sheep know his voice, and I believe that. And I think you need to spend time with the shepherd in order to distinguish his voice. And one other thing, it's not so much what he says, it's the person who says it. I can tell you, I can say, I am the resurrection and the life. And you'll say, I think we need to call the uh, insane asylum here. But if Jesus says it, it's a lot different. And when you hear Jesus talking, you recognize the voice. And it changes everything. It, it, it could be a nice feeling. It could be a feel-good feeling. But you'll start to notice the quality of the experience you'll notice the person who is saying this to you. And it was real, and it's really quite simple to start. Instead of waiting for the moment when you've got to make a decision, okay, how do I see God? How do I see God? You've had all this practice behind you, and you know his voice. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. The cure for a burned-out heart is a burning one. And we get a burning heart by discerning the person first. And the decisions come easier because we know the shepherd. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for being our shepherd. And we thank you for the Messiah who has promised to send a counselor with us. And we ask your forgiveness when we start trying to brush that tapping on our shoulder off. Father, teach us to be patient and recognize your voice. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.